episode 234 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Saturday 11th of January 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and here's a belated Happy New Year to you for the start of the 20s. Who knows whether they'll be roaring or not, but I know for me personally that this decade will see me getting out on my bike as much as I can. Although not as much as my 22-year-old son, Josh. Back on show 231, I recorded an episode about his epic bike ride back to the UK from China. And now we've just discovered he's been chosen to ride the transcontinental race in July. This is a self-supported race from Brest in France to Burgas in Bulgaria, via not the Alps this year, but the Carpathian Mountains. Before, maybe even during, and after this ultra-Audax race, we'll get Josh back on this show. But meanwhile, today's episode is not about long-distance cycling, at all. It's about bicycle infrastructure and how it can be often installed unevenly. And that's socially, not just geographically. To discuss this, I'm joined by John Stalen, Assistant Professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in America. We talk about his book, Cyclescapes of the Unequal City. John, thank you ever so much for for joining us on today's show. Uh, I've got your book in front of me and I will go through it almost uh, page for page and pick out bits that I'd like to talk to you about. But first of all, I'd like to to find out about you. So I'd like you to tell us your your academic trajectory, including and starting with your job as a bicycle mechanic at Via Bicycle in Philadelphia. Right. Yeah. Well, that was, I mean, that was pretty formative in the introduction or in the acknowledgments, sorry, in the text. I like to blame also a good friend, Joey, for kind of hooking me on tinkering with bikes. But uh, Via Bicycle was really a sort of a a major kind of formation. Um, I went in knowing basically just enough to be very dangerous and left knowing quite a bit about both working on bicycles and kind of bicycle history. Uh, It was a shop that basically serviced bikes everywhere from about 1870 onward. Um, And uh, as a mechanic at that shop, one um, one of the main parts of my job was uh, speaking Spanish on a daily basis. So um, a lot, there were a lot of, this was in the, um, this was in the uh, Italian market, South Street district of Philadelphia, which um, is now kind of the center uh, or one of the centers in the sort of, uh, in the city 
of um, kind of Latino immigration uh, from Central America and Mexico. Um, and a there were a lot of mostly men, mostly male uh, delivery riders uh, or would be delivering food on bicycles or would be getting to work at restaurant jobs on bicycles. Um, and because of the constraints on their budgets, all they could really afford were bicycles from Target or Walmart. And so they were in kind of constant need of repair um, or installing a basket, those types of things. Um, and so I came to know them fairly well. And it, basically at the same time, and you know, I'm kind of applying this frame to myself, was the kind of rise of more cognizance of the kind of hipster bicycle moment, right? Um, and then there were a lot of people, you know, people who looked like me, like younger white folks, uh, coming to the bike shop, getting uh, old road bikes converted into fixed gear bikes, you know, part of this kind of cultural moment. A lot of messengers came to our bike shop, bike messengers. And so it was kind of this, this very complex brew. There are a lot of older uh, retirees, lower income people, um, people of color who had lived in the neighborhood for a long time. Now the neighborhood was kind of undergoing gentrification. In fact, the, um, you know, the shop itself actually was recently displaced to a different location because the building that it was in was sold. Um, and so it was kind of, kind of an example of how bike shops are often actually subject to some of the same forces that I'm talking about in the book that, that um, you know, affect uh, residential, uh, uh, you know, that affect residential patterns. Uh, so, uh, I didn't kind of, I didn't think a ton about that as a potential project, um, going into grad school. I mostly, uh, a part of my motivation for, uh, applying to get a PhD was, uh, kind of to restart the, um, you know, the, I'd say re restart the, the kind of academic side of my brain um, and tried uh, over the course of my PhD, tried to keep the kind of mechanical side of my brain going by continuing to work at a bike shop uh, mo for most of my PhD. Uh, but then in my, in my PhD, I started to kind of take early in my PhD before I had decided on a, a topic, I started to take note of some of these kind of these moments of battles over bicycle infrastructure uh, as being indicative of or reflective or even causal of uh, gentrification. Uh, you know, most notably in Portland, there was a big fight over uh, a bike lane project in uh, Portland's kind of historic uh, low-income African-American neighborhood, which had a long history of displacement through infrastructure projects. Uh, and that, you know, uh, I did a little bit of field work up there and ultimately didn't uh, didn't pursue it because I kind of refocused around the the kind of regional story of the San Francisco Bay Area. But that kind of alerted me to the 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 sort of the politics of space and and infrastructure and this kind of this way of movement that um, partially became sort of noticeable in cities, precisely not just because it was novel, but because it for whom it was novel. It was novel to see white middle-class professionals on bicycles, not in sort of smaller college towns, but in bigger cities and in gentrifying neighborhoods. 
So your your book, and you call it a monograph in one of in your CV, like, uh, quite cute. Uh, y- your book uh, it focuses on three cities, one of them being uh, Philadelphia. But just to go backwards a little bit, you're not in Philadelphia now. I'm, I'm assuming I'm talking to you where you are at your c- current institution, University of North Carolina. Yeah. So uh, currently, I'm at the uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro in the Geography, Environment, and Sustainability program or department. Um, and the, uh, the book has a kind of complex trajectory because I had done a bit of, I had done, I had some filling some familiarity with the Philadelphia case, uh, from having, having worked there, uh, after I finished my PhD dissertation, which was focused most specifically on the San Francisco Bay area. I did some subsequent field work with a small grant from, uh, the university of California, Berkeley, where I was continuing as a lecturer. And I returned to another kind of field site that I had um, explored early on, which was Detroit, uh, which was in which was implementing a a bike sharing system sort of on the model of of city city bike in New York City, but more appropriately on the model of Philadelphia's bike share system. And at that same time, the San Francisco Bay Area was finally expanding its initial pilot, which was basically just San Francisco, San Jose, and a sprinkling in between, was finally expanding that pilot to the East Bay, which was kind of more properly my everyday field site. So it made sense to expand on the dissertation for the purposes of making it into a book. Now, your book is US-based, but I note from your again from your CV, uh, University of Manchester. So you were in in Manchester 2018, and yes, yeah, it was a one year position at the Sustainable Consumption Institute, uh, and you know it was a it was an it was quite eye opening actually. Um, my expertise again, yeah, comes from the United States uh, and the sort of specific bicycle politics of the United States. Uh, and there's some elements, there's some kind of Anglo North Atlantic commonalities between the U S and the UK uh, in terms of bicycle policy, but also some significant differences. Uh, so, you know, I did, I did ride a bike around in, in Manchester. Uh, and when I was there, I was doing, I was working on kind of new research that's going to be coming out quite soon on mobility platforms far more generally. And that was you know, I think part of the impetus for that with my collaborators, uh, Michael Hodson and Andrew McMeekin, was the experience of the MoBike um, uh, bike sharing platform that had emerged kind of suddenly in 2017 in Manchester, which was its first European foothold. And then basically, as soon as I arrived there in 2018, it had uh, they had abandoned the city. Um for a complex set of reasons that we can talk about if you're interested, but that was, so that was a kind of, it was a nice trajectory from looking at bicycling, bicycling with people's personal bicycles and bicycle lanes into the politics of bicycle sharing systems into this whole new kind of world of the politics of uh, mobility platforms more generally, and especially micro mobility. I would like to get on to micro mobility and on to, to bike share because I know it's a, it's a chapter in your in your book. But just to go back to Manchester, so you were there when Mobike 
kind of rose and then failed. I mean, mainly it's because of um, uh, vandalism and it was just costing too much for the, the, the company to have the bikes in this particular city, which, which also raises uh, issues of um, w- what are the bicycles? Why are they getting trashed? Which is interesting in it, it, its own right. But Manchester is going to be... Uh, so Chris Boardman, the cycling and walking commissioner, who was big into Mobike, they had two... Uh, systems at, at one time but they are going to be bringing their own docked version in quite soon so they're they're, they're, they're going to be getting uh, a variety of companies including the big ones that have done london montreal etc to come in and pitch for that so manchester is changing so you were there yeah. at a, a pretty formative time uh with with manchester and oxford road where you would have been based had the bike lanes were were, were freshly minted when you were yeah, uh, probably a year old when you were there. So that was changing the composition of cycling in Manchester, anyway, with lots of students. Right. Yes, uh, definitely. Um, and the so the the Mobike was really on the wane basically when I arrived in August of 2018. Um, there was there was speculation that was pretty well substantiated that they were going to leave. And it was interesting because I had just come off of doing some field work for a different new project that was continuing the work on bicycle sharing systems in uh, Austin, Philadelphia, and Oakland, which was a sort of a a deepening of that last chapter, so to speak, but then adding in um, Austin, which was another uh, interesting case, a kind of a a more of a sunbelt case, so to speak, in the United States parlance. And when I was in Philadelphia, I took a trip across the river to Camden, New Jersey, which was, to my knowledge, the only place where there was a kind of formal structured partnership between one of the micromobility providers, OFO, and, the, um, and a kind of local commu- uh, development corporation um, in Camden. And... Uh, Shortly after I was there conducting interviews um, and uh, kind of seeing seeing a kind of a very different context of a sort of a city that um, by most by most ways of measuring would not have been able to support a dock based system because of the kind of uh, level of investment required. For complicated reasons, the Philadelphia system would not have been able to expand over the river just yet, although I think that would that would have made a lot of sense. And so they had this OFO system. Um, you know, shortly after I left Philadelphia uh, in July, OFO declared that it was leaving the United States altogether. And, you know, my understanding is that Camden read about it in the newspapers just like everybody else. And their their argument in that case was simply sort of refocusing around, you know, strategically better markets. And so I felt slightly, you know, there was a lot of vandalism of Mobike and uh, Mobikes and stuff. And I know that Mobike's bicycles were more expensive than some of the other firms, but I, I looked at, you know, I was maybe a bit more skeptical of the justification of vandalism because there was a great report done by Graeme Sheriff and others at, um, the at University of Salford that showed that Mobike had been kind of paring down its uh, spatial coverage kind of over a long period of time leading up to that closure. And they just also weren't getting the kind of the usage rates um, because they weren't covering very much of the city uh, in order to cut, cut, to cut costs. 
So I think there's a kind of a bit more complicated story uh, of the of the um, that dockless bike story because that that wave has sort of receded in general in favor of the scooters. But to go to the to go to the Oxford Road case, I mean, it was a very interesting case because on the one hand, the Oxford Road's infrastructure was was fantastic, right? And on the other hand, it was basically present only on Oxford Road. So when I would ride to uh, sort of the you know the middle class suburb of say Chorlton, for example, uh, I would ride in a, a a quite narrow bike lane. There were a lot of cyclists, but a quite narrow you know uh, quite narrower than in the United States. Actually, it was quite eye opening. And then there are other other parts of the city, more low income parts of the city, where there were you know less, you know potentially less demand for bicycle infrastructure, less agitation for it, uh, where you didn't see much of anything in terms of bike infrastructure. So while I think that you know I think that 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 was a um, it was an impressive piece of infrastructure. I, I you know I think it was still a one of those cases of, of sort of its very uneven deployment. And I think that my understanding of Boardman's approach is that he wants to see it to he wants it to be far more comprehensive. So, John, let, let me go to your actual book here. So I've got it in my hand uh, and I want to get a definition of here in a second. But it's it's called Cyclescapes of the Unequal City, Bicycle Infrastructure and Uneven Development. And it's the University of Minnesota Press. Now, in the book itself, uh, you talk about cyclescape. Uh, being the discursive space of the bicycle. So expand on that. What is a cyclescape? The cyclescape, I'm sort of, I'm drawing on some of the literature in human geography and anthropology around kind of bringing the the notion of a scape. So for instance, a landscape that kind of brings together the, the materiality of of the of the space with a kind of experiential and um, and discursive component as well, especially thinking about the way that you know part of what motivated me was thinking about the ways in which being on a bicycle the the kind of materiality of cycling actually calls up kind of elicits a different relationship to urban space, a different way of seeing urban space, a different way of navigating urban space, but that that was also cut through with uh, not just questions of uneven urban development, right? Where, where infrastructure existed, what places were cut off or more connected from what other places, but also questions of race, uh, class, gender, and more generally the sort of the pos- positionality of the rider. Uh, and so Cyclescape was, a, was sort of a way of bringing together that that material, the discursive and the kind of experiential together into sort of into one frame. So in, in the book, and I'm going to be I'm quoting you at length here, uh, you describe bicycling as being placed or framed alongside guerrilla gardening, uh, graffiti and skateboarding as acts of hacking the dominant code of the capitalist city. Now, that describes to me Detroit uh, down to a T. I know there's a lot of guerrilla gardening goes on in in Detroit. Uh, for a variety of reasons. So d- describe where you were coming from in, in, in that particular sentence. So w- in that sentence, I was really drawing from the work of Chris Carlson, uh, who I think I was, I was referencing his work and then also um, uh, 
uh, I want to say it was Mark Farrell. Now I'm forgetting and I'm scanning my shelf to see if I can see it. Um, but the, all of these different ways of thinking and really drawing a lot of ways on the French sociologist Michel de Certeau, who posited a kind of um, a, a, a set of everyday practices through which people would sort of disrupt the, the control regimes of the kind of dominant grid of urban space. Um, and I, that was a really, it's a really common way of thinking about bicycling, especially coming from messenger and punk and other kind of do-it-yourself subcultures, subcultures uh, which were really, really major influences in, in bicycling culture, uh, at least up through, you know, when I was inculcated into it in the early 2000s. Um, in the case of Detroit, one of the things that initially put Detroit on the map for me, so to speak, was uh, I found an article in the New York Times that, that was talking about this, you know, a about the sort of creative reappropriation of urban space. So, you know, warehouse conversions, um, uh, guerrilla gardening, all of that kind of stuff that was going on in Detroit and, and also discussed cycling at length and made an interesting argument about the politics of cycling where you could, the argument, uh, and I'm blanking on the man's name, which I feel bad, bad about, he very kindly invited me over to his house when I was in Detroit at one point, um, posited that cyclists, bicycle advocates could make what he said was a kind of tactical retreat to Detroit, uh, where there was plenty of space, uh, where cars had abandoned uh, the massive boulevards that were now far too large for the amount of traffic that actually existed in the city, and that the sort of the pitched battles uh, over bicycle infrastructure that you saw in New York City and um, San Francisco and Portland would be sort of solved by just the the general abandonment of the city. And I thought that was a bit a bit of a strange way of framing a city that the abandonment of which was very uneven. Uh, people who were able to leave, um, and especially over the last fifty years. You know the the white population were, who were able to leave left, and the people who were left with the kind of decaying infrastructure were mostly people of color who who were prevented from leaving by a whole set of reasons having to do with segregation, having to do with the the very low values of their of the houses that they owned, any sort of resale value to then purchase a house somewhere else, etc. And so this sort of Creative reappropriation felt from a kind of another perspective as sort of partying or kind of framing Detroit as a, as a cemetery where it was actually still a site of struggle over race and disinvestment. Um, and so th nevertheless, there were, there were actually a lot of really interesting things going on in the city of Detroit uh, that, that upended a lot of the assumptions around uh, what bicycling meant. Uh, there, uh, there were a number of, when I did field work there in uh, 2011 and then came back in 2016 and 2017, there was a massive number of, uh, of black bicycling clubs organized around churches in quote unquote, the neighborhoods, which in Detroit denotes 
the areas of the city that are outside the central business district. And what you've seen in Detroit over the last, say, five to seven years is a massive reinvestment in the central business district, the, what is called the 7.2, and very patchy reinvestment outside of those areas. A few kind of more, uh, more gentrifying neighborhoods such as Corktown and Woodbridge, uh, West Village, which I, all of which I discuss in the book, uh, and then beyond that, kind of ongoing, ongoing abandonment. Um, and so more generally, what, what I was both trying to capture the vitality of bicycling as a subculture and pointing to the limits in this framing of sort of strategic and kind of underground reappropriation of urban space um, and the way in which that narrative of bicyclists kind of bringing back the city of Detroit in some ways both kind of flew in the face of the evidence, which is that bicycling was uh, was very diverse and actually practiced as, consciously as a survival strategy in that city. And the, the, the logical extension of that argument was that it was the sort of the dispossession of certain areas would be the sort of the, the proving grounds for their re their kind of rebirth through bicycling and active transportation. I, I thought I, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I didn't agree with that sort of politically as well. Now you, you do talk about vehicular cycling in your book and I, I don't want to touch it exactly right here, but on Detroit, when I was there, uh, there were campaigns to get bike lanes put in, but then you look at the roads and it's like, but there's no cars on these roads. Why would you actually want bike lanes when you've got a four-lane highway here with one car every 10 minutes coming along? You have got the whole of the, the infrastructure here. You don't need bike lanes. Now, I have been told, and you can you can tell me if this is true here, that has massively changed now in that those highways, like the, the Woodward. So I was taking photographs on Woodward uh, where there was, there was I could put my bike in the middle of the road and 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 take a photograph quite happily and then okay you could see a car coming uh but you've still got another few minutes to actually take the photograph now you can't do that now i believe so maybe bike lanes yeah. are a bit more needed now but it's also very very um distinct in between the the areas as you were you were touching on there in that some areas uh were still massively car orientated and others absolutely not so if you radio out from woodward and you went to, say, the Middle Eastern, the kind of the Arab areas, well, that was massively car-centric. And it was very dangerous to be on your bike at that point. And yet just a mile uh, further towards the, 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 the CBD, it becomes incredibly safe because there were no cars. Right. Yeah, I mean, so I think what's... Uh, in, in a way, Detroit is unexceptional in that regard. Uh, I think what's exceptional is the scale of the unevenness. Um, but I mean, that's a patterning that you see in a lot of American cities. Uh, there, uh, there are streets that due to disinvestment are not heavily used by, uh, by cars, um, but there are, not a, there are not a ton of destinations around there. So it's, it's hard to see that as a kind of model for um, kind of re refocusing transportation priorities, which is ultimately what I'm interested in, right? Mm. Um, 
I think Detroit was also a really interesting case because uh, when I had done field work there back in 2011, with the uh, I spoke to people at the Southwest Detroit Business uh, Association, who was who were far more of a kind of a community development corporation, and they had been major supporters of putting a bike lane in on um, on the one of the kind of the main thoroughfares in the Latino section of Southwest Detroit which was actually uh, among, among the places that were, were far less disinvested than other places in Detroit because of uh, immigration from Latin America. And so that was a place where there was actually, uh, it was Verner Avenue, uh, there was a significant amount of congestion in part because there was still a lot of activity. Uh, the uh, my recollection of being there in 2011 versus 20, 2016 uh, and then 2017 is the the total transformation of the Woodward corridor especially with the with the building of the M1 uh light rail system which some people call the um straight line people mover be, with a as a kind of a derisive uh reference to it uh you see Woodward is now much, much more of a challenge on bicycle, in part because there's a kind of a complicated jog that the streetcar line does between sometimes curbside boarding and sometimes center boarding. And so that precluded bike lanes on Woodward, which was, I think, frustrated a lot of advocates. Uh, the, the street Cass, which is just to the west, is now this, is now where um, a lot of bicycle infrastructure investment is going in. And you're also seeing a lot of bicycle infrastructure investment on Jefferson, which is the big, big uh, east-west corridor on the east side of Detroit. Really, it's kind of northeast to southwest uh, because of the angle of the streets. But, uh, you know, I think that was a very car-dominated corridor, even back in uh, 2011 when I was there, and certainly is now. Uh, and so there is, there, there is a way in which, again, the, the, the hypertrophy of the streets for, you know, back when Detroit was a city of, of 2 million people, uh, does create a lot of opportunities to recapture some of that road space without kind of negatively affecting the flow of traffic. Um, I'd like to see... You know, I think it requires more political will, but it's political will that's really sorely needed, the ability to recapture road space in places where it does uh, affect the flow of traffic. Uh, but also kind of balancing that against creating other uh, better ways of, of moving for people who, for reasons of where they work or where they live, are for the, for the moment, at least, uh, going to be needing to use cars. And many of those areas, quite apart from the ones out in the absolute suburbs, are where people of colour live, who generally in, in many cities, and this is uh, very much uh, evident in America and, and, and less so in the UK, but it's more class-based, uh, don't tend to get the, the kind of the, the investments in bicycle infrastructure that, say, a middle class mainly white area gets and i guess that also touches on bike share stuff as well so an awful lot of bike share 
uh, certainly the docked ones, you often find that they're not put in in uh, cities uh, equitably. They are very much placed in certain areas. So how can how can cities break out of that? And and is it worth their while to do so if cycling in in some communities isn't actually that that aspirational? Right. I mean, that's a that's a difficult set of questions and something I'm still grappling with in the work uh, that I am, you know, a, 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 a chunk of writing that I'm I'm still in the process of completing from the more recent work. Um, the short version is uh, investment. Right. Um, one of the things about um, one of the things about uh, bike share systems, at least the or any bike share system, but especially the the station based systems, is once once you've put them in, they still have to perform. Um, they still have to generate revenue. Whereas once you've put in a bike lane, um, if it's something very kind of niche, it might require a different kind of sweeping regime, for example. But once you've put in a bike lane, it doesn't, it only has to prove its value politically, right? Um, Because politicians will point and say, well, you took away this parking or you took away this road space and look at this empty bike lane, right? Which is, Mm -hmm. we don't get that same narrative about empty road space. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nevertheless, with, with bicycle sharing systems as they're sort of currently uh, constituted, they're sort of stuck between being bicycle infrastructure capital investments and being transit systems. And I'll speak to the U.S. case, which I know better than some others. Uh, in the U.S. case, uh, a lot of bicycle sharing systems are launched, at least in part, with federal grants. And the federal grants are basically permitted only for um, capital investments rather than ongoing operational costs. And so operations will be funded from uh, a sponsorship deal, ideally, and uh, and ongoing fare box recovery. Uh, And basically, that's essentially it. There's small other pots of money that cities and uh, bike share systems can tap into uh, grants, that's the case of Philadelphia, which actually enabled them to expand on um, on the kind of more restricted system that would otherwise be possible. Uh, but they still have to they still have to perform. Uh, they still have to perform as infrastructure. And the reason I compare it to transit is in the more recent work that I've been doing in Austin, for example, um, the bicycle sharing system because of the lack of a big title sponsor like a Citibank or like Ford, uh, which until recently sponsored the San Francisco Bay Area system, uh, they had to operate on around a 100%, 95 to 100% fare box recovery ratio. So they they had to be completely self-sustaining. Whereas the fare box recovery ratio for actual transit is closer to 35 to 40%. Um, If you're getting 50 or 60, that's tremendous. Um, And the rest comes from federal subsidies. And so there's a bill that is periodically, uh, that is periodically works its way through Congress that's called the Bike uh, bike Share Transit Bill 
that would redesignate bicycle sharing systems as transit. That would open up a lot of federal grants, uh, federal funding for operations, which would enable a kind of different morphology of the system. Um, you could see something, and this would still require political will. It would still require a commitment to invest uh, more broadly outside of the kind of the central cities. Um, but you could see you could see the movement toward a um, a kind of transit, a more directly transit oriented system, uh, which systems today are somewhat transit oriented, but it, but also attempt to preserve uh, contiguity. But you could see um, you could see networks extending into suburban areas that connect to uh, kind of longer distance commuter trains uh, that would potentially open up a lot more usage and a lot uh, you know reduce car dependence on on that end as well. Um, so that would be an option with with kind of federal funding. Uh, in the case of Philadelphia, I kind of pull out Philadelphia as a, as a potential example in the book, because what Philadelphia did was very consciously attempt, both through capital investment and through outreach, to extend the range of the system beyond the kind of usual suspect, so to speak, narratives or neighborhoods, I should say, which were the central business district adjacent you know, predominantly now gentrifying um, middle-class professional, t- uh, predominantly white, or or um, or at least turning toward toward that demographic profile. Those types of neighborhoods, um, which you had seen, dominated the ridership of uh, of bike share systems in places like Washington D.C., for example. Philadelphia was very conscious to uh, to upend that and to move beyond that uh, to move beyond that narrative. And part of what enabled that was um, local philanthropic money. Part of what enabled that was uh, philanthropic philanthropic funding that funded more generally an approach toward rethinking how bicycle sharing systems were put in called the better bike share um, the better bike share uh, program project um, and Philadelphia was one of the kind of case studies and so there was a lot of money going into outreach there was a lot of going a lot of money going into actually understanding how low-income people in uh, neighborhoods of color, uh, in Philadelphia would actually potentially use the system. Uh, it changed how it changed how they actually went about planning and designing the systems. It changed where the system would be located. So they had an outreach uh, effort soliciting feedback on particular uh, station locations beyond just the kind of web-based map, which was very common in a lot of other cities. And it required shoe leather, shoe leather, and it required money. And the idea was to develop develop a program that could then be deployed as a set of best practices for much less investment in other cities. But I think, you know, Philadelphia saw um, saw a 
an incredible increase in the number of low-income people and people of color using their system. And I think part of the story is actually just that effort, not that one-off effort to create a pilot that would that you could then deploy very cheaply elsewhere, but that ongoing effort and the kind of real show of commitment to neighborhoods that had seen, um, you know, that had seen uh, neglect, uh, infrastructural neglect, right? Um, so I think that's part of the Philadelphia story that was maybe un- was maybe unanticipated in the sort of the structuring of how it was anticipated to be a, a sort of best practices test case. That sounds really good. And it, it does sound different to how other cities have done it, because as we know, I mean, you're a white guy, I'm a white guy. And we know that the, the current kind of trope for cycling is that it's white, it's bourgeois, it's hipsters, it's it's the gentrification which you are talking about. When in fact, the majority users of bicycles, uh, certainly in the, in the US, maybe not so in the UK, uh, are people of colour. And they're, they're often described in that, that famous article as invisible cyclists in that they're out there. There's a lot of them, but we don't notice them for, for various cultural reasons and perhaps even physical reasons in that they might not want to be seen. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, in, that's incredibly important. And, uh, you know, some of my colleagues, uh, Adonia Lugo, Melody Hoffman, um, a lot of other folks have written really perceptive, perceptively on this more perceptively than I have, I think. Um, and I think that, you know, part of the invisibility is, or I'll, I'll say, I'll refocus it and say part of the kind of hyper visibility of the, the kind of middle class, uh, largely white professionals, uh, or if, if not largely white, uh, in a place like Oakland, non-black, um, which I think is an important caveat. Um, the, a lot of a lot of that hyper visibility has to do with the kind of novelty of seeing people in an unexpected class position, right? Uh, visibly, maybe sartorially, uh, visibly middle class um, on bicycles, where it had been considered to be a, a mode of transportation of last resort uh, previously, or it was for people who had lost their license due to um, a conviction for uh, impaired driving, for example, things of that nature, or people, you know, who couldn't afford a car or, uh, you know, a variety of reasons, right? That it was perceived as some sort of, uh, of lack on the part of the individual that one was on a bike, or it was a kind of lunatic fringe of the hippie environmentalists, right? That's how it would be glossed. And I think the novelty of seeing um, seeing the kind of young, maybe slightly stylish uh, professionals, uh, you know, mostly white, uh, suddenly appearing in central city neighborhoods that had previously been disinvested and on bicycles uh, becoming visible. And again, this is that kind of the, the cyclescape argument and the way in which there's the, the machine the machinic qualities, and I'm coming from uh, science and technology studies with this as well, the kind of inherent properties of the bicycle lend themselves toward that increased visibility. And then on the flip side, you rightly pointed out that, um, that 
There is the narrative of invisible cyclists, um, which I think partially comes from a sense that, um, or maybe a tacit sense that it's unremarkable to see a low-income person marked racially uh, using a mode of transportation that's appropriate for a low-income person, right? Which is how bicycles were perceived previously. Cycling kind of gets it with with both barrels from both ends in that it's, it's for poor people and also rich people. And these, you know, you can, whichever way you want to attack it, you can attack cycling from all sorts of different angles in that, you know, this is for paupers or it's for people with very, very expensive cars that have left them at home and are going out treating this as cycling as the new golf. So you have got both of those streams at exactly the same time. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it is quite fascinating. And you also have, that's also the kind of the, the story of the American city right now as well, right? The, 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 the city that, the um that the middle class can no longer afford that the that the um that very low income people have a very tenuous foothold in still uh because of the presence of public housing which has been disinvested and and uh you know cities are are working hard to eliminate it in a lot of cases uh but it still exists um and there are still poor people in cities who benefit from the low cost of bicycling and the, uh, the relatively um, the relative lack of sort of official exposure to instruments of the state, right. Thinking about licensing requirements, which don't exist for, for bicycles. And I think would be a terrible idea to institute. Um, But going back to, I think you get both the invisibility where it's not, it's not unusual to see a poor person on a bicycle uh, historically and the hyper visibility where being on a bicycle exposes people, primarily people of color and low income people to, um, to enhance scrutiny. So cases of biking while black, which I think there were findings in Tampa of massive disproportionality in terms of uh, police stops of, of, Black people on bicycles. Uh, while I was doing field work, there was a um, there was a uh, a young black man in the Mission District in San Francisco who was sort of snatched off of his bicycle at his front door by uh, San Francisco police, and there was a pretty large march that I think it was exciting because it included a lot of bicycle advocates who maybe in their day jobs, had not always been on the front line sticking up for the rights of, of the poor, uh, specifically. So, And that was a kind of an exciting moment. Um, but that overexposure, I, I also, to, to bring it back to Detroit, one of the investments uh, in Southwest Detroit uh, was a bridge that crossed one of the kind of the main freeways that cuts Southwest Detroit off from uh from the Corktown neighborhood. Uh, this is the, the Bagley Bridge. There, it was a big, big investment. It was a bike ped bridge. Um, and it, you know, it's a really nice piece of infrastructure. And I heard when I was there in 2011, a lot of Latino cyclists were, who lived in that neighborhood were not using that bridge because of how visible they would be to immigration and customs enforcement, which goes to show notionally the border that ICE is... Yeah, yeah. Policing is the Canadian border in that in that location, 
But it was that exposure, whether it was real or not. And I saw ICE agents frequenting uh, taquerias in um, in Southwest Detroit. Whether it was whether it was simply perceived or whether it was a real overexposure, being visible on a bike on that bridge, that was a that was it was it was narrated to me as a big part of why you didn't see a lot of usage of that bridge. I, I would like to come back to. Uh, how cycle infrastructure is used. And we'll, we'll come back to that after this uh, short advertising break. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. And thanks, David. And we are back uh, with the show. And I'm back here uh, with uh, John Stalen. And we are talking about cyclescapes of the unequal city. And I, I'd now like to go into a, a topic where, well, we know, as in bicycle advocates know, that there's a huge economic sense of putting in cycle infrastructure. Uh, but you do describe that in your book as exclusionary urbanism. John, so what exactly is exclusionary urbanism? Yeah, I mean, so I'll, I'll back up and talk a little bit about what made me interested in that in this emerging business case for bicycle infrastructure. Um, one of it, one of the the reasons that I got interested in this was um, the the narratives around gentrification and the and that the um, the 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 battles over bicycle infrastructure in North Portland in the Albina neighborhood, for example, uh, were specifically, there were not just battles over a gentrifying neighborhood. There were also battles over this having been one of the key black commercial strips in the area um, that had seen massive demolition in, um, in the context of urban renewal, demolition that was actually then the land was never actually rebuilt uh, because of a change in urban renewal plans. And so there was a lot of abandonment, but it was a black commercial strip. And so part of it had to do with that, that business district. So not just a gentr not just a residential district in the abstract, but the kind of identity of that business district. Um, and one of the kind of big early one of the one of the places where this narrative had 
that the narrative of bicycling being good for business had first achieved really a lot of traction was the Valencia Street uh, district in San Francisco, which is what I talk about in, in one of the chapters in my book, and the ways in which bicyclists, bicycle advocates had to fight to get a bike lane put in on Valencia. Uh, it was not determined to be viable based on uh, traffic engineers' understanding of uh, traffic flow on that street. Uh, in the uh, in the initial bike plan in the draft that was released in 1997, it was not included. It was a signed bicycle route, but it was not. Uh, there would be no kind of real infrastructure treatments to it, and so bicycle advocates were predictably angry because it was actually one of the streets that they used the most to get from the Mission District, which was at that time sort of seeing seeing the early parts of the wave of gentrification that crested in 2001 with the dot-com boom, and then again uh, after the dot-com boom. And now is, you know, one of the kind of the crown jewels, if so to speak, of gentrification in the San Francisco Bay Area and crown jewels of bicycling as well. Um, they had to fight tooth and nail to get this included in the bike plan, uh, which uh, the Department of Parking and Traffic, the head, the head of which uh, said there would be bike lanes on Valencia over my dead body. Part of the case that they made was a business case, was going to local businesses and saying that um, you're going to see more people shopping, you're going to see more people um, stopping at your stores, uh, popping in quickly because they're going to be moving at lower speeds uh, because the traffic will be calmed. And the mechanism for this was what was known at the time as a road diet. So reducing the, uh, reducing the overall width of the street, not the overall widths, I should say, the allocation of road space from four travel lanes, two in each direction, to three car travel or two, two car travel lanes one center turn lane and a bike lane on each side, notably did not affect parking. And that was a kind of a big third rail at that time. So uh, that was approved uh, and it became, uh, the, the success of it was narrated in economic terms as much as anything else. It was also uh, a success in terms of reducing crashes and it was a success in terms of reduce or of increasing the use of that corridor by bicyclists, but it was also narrated in terms of economic benefits. And around 2011, 2012, it popped up. Uh, it was kind of ubiquitous in discourse on streets blog or from bicycle advocates about the economic benefits of bicycle infrastructure. Right, that this was a it was a clear test case of the so bike bike bikeonomics exactly uh, as Ellie Blue puts it, and mm. you know it's I don't think that's wrong necessarily. Like I think it is easier to make a quick stop and pop into a store on a bike. I think what it does is orient advocacy toward these particular um, these particular kinds of cases. Uh, trying to foster a thriving commercial corridor. Um, and I think it also points toward a kind of limited view of sort of 
the range of justifications that you might be able to use for bicycling infrastructure. And um, I think actually the business case, it's funny, you know, my book just came out, but I think the business case has waned slightly in favor of the safety case. And I talk about this a little bit in the last chapter of the book, but I think it's become even stronger since I was kind of drafting the, putting the final touches on it. I think this, because of, especially in the, in San Francisco, the increases in uh, cycling injuries, cyclist injuries, pedestrian injuries, cyclist fatalities, pedestrian fatalities, there's been a kind of a sudden uptick across the board in the United States. Um, there, people are still trying to figure out what the causes of that are. Um, on Valencia Street, you saw a sort of a mass invasion of the bike lane by Uber and Lyft as a place to pick up and drop off passengers and that creating a lot of problems on that corridor. Um, but the safety case, I think, is both more, um, is more valuable, it's more generalizable, it points us towards places like East Oakland, where there are high crash rates, um, but uh, uh, high crash rates, very little infrastructure, um, a lot more cyclists of color. And the business case would be a more challenging sell because of its association with gentrification in those areas, whereas a safety case has potentially more traction. Now, I do talk about in the book how safety can mean different things to different groups of people. Um, if it's a safety case that is couched in terms of more aggressive policing of infractions by drivers, I think that that's a non-starter for a lot of communities of color and a lot of low-income communities who rightly see police as a threat. Um, so safety is not a non-political thing, but it potentially has wider traction. Uh, and notably, the politicization of cycling injuries and fatalities in the Netherlands in the 1970s was a big part of the backlash against auto automobility that led to a kind of more pervasive investment in bicycle infrastructure there. So there's some precedent to that as well. So, so where does exclusionary urbanism come in? Right. I think the ex exclusionary urbanism is less about whether a bike lane leads to exclusion and a bit more about whether a bike lane and bicycle infrastructure investment when pursued for a kind of business oriented strategy reflects an exclusionary urbanism. And so one of the things I talked about in, I talk about in the introduction, uh, which is kind of the introduction is doing a couple of things where it sets the stage for the kind of broad regional political economy of the, of the San Francisco Bay Area, Philadelphia, and Detroit, but then also looking at particular ways in which uh, active transportation, both walkability and uh, bicycle infrastructure, have been included in quite massive uh, redevelopment strategies, especially in the case of Philadelphia, the sort of the, re, the, re, the refocusing of West Philadelphia around uh, the innovation economy and bicycle, uh, bicycle investments in bicycle infrastructure, and again, active transportation more generally, being, being understood to be a key part of that. And what you're seeing is this kind of massive investment, especially in 
office development R&D space um, around the Schuylkill River in uh, West Philadelphia. And um, the, the area around UPenn and Drexel really becoming a sort of a second downtown or, you know, you could even say a third downtown in terms of the historical development of the city um, for Philadelphia more broadly. And so infrastructure for the creative class. Yes, exactly. Right. The sort of the innovate, the innovation district model, which, um, you know, that uh, comes, uh, you know, you're referencing Richard Florida, quite rightly. Also, um, the Brookings Institution and especially Bruce Katz at the Brookings Institution has been uh very has been kind of one of the key thought leaders in this realm. And again, it's like I, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that those framings of a more walkable, a more bike, bikeable urban space being conducive to the kinds of happenstance uh, interactions that lead to new ideas. That's you know that goes all the way back to Jane Jacobs, but it's also been shown to be quite an exclusionary model of envisioning an urban future uh, in a lot of places. And, you know, that's led Richard Florida kind of to kind of reorient how he frames his work around this kind of the new urban crisis and the fact that the benefits of the economic engine of the creative class, although I think that there, there's kind of dubious statistical compositional elements to the creative class model, those benefits haven't really been extended beyond. So, so I'm going to quote you a sentence, and it, it does lead in from what you've just been saying there, really. So this is your word. As bicycle infrastructure becomes another valuable amenity in the urban portfolio, however, the bicycle fails to meet what many justifiably see as its emancipatory potential. So <laughs> expand on that. So we've, we've, it's, it's failing. How is it failing? Well, it's sort of not the bicycle's fault. You know, this is like one of those one of those tough things. Um, I don't. I try not to accord the bicycle a kind of unique causal role in all of this uh, because bicycling is actually still extremely marginal. And I think that's kind of my point. Hmm. Uh, you have a situation where I think rightly people see enormous potential for getting people out of cars into. Uh, an equally flexible mode of movement through space, right? Um, there's actually a lot of commonality between the bicycle and the car. They're both quite individualized. One is a sort of a, a furnace into which we're plowing our future, and the other has a very light touch in terms of environmental costs, in terms of costs to the individual operator, etc. Nevertheless, um, I think it being a kind of niche development strategy in a certain number, a small subset of urban neighborhoods in a small subset of cities in the United States limits the potential that you, that, um, that, you know, that limits its potential. Uh, when people talk about bicycling being the most inexpensive way to get from point A to point B, there are a lot of caveats to that. Where is where is point A? Where is point B? Um, do is it expensive in terms of cost? Is it expensive in terms of personal risk? Is it expensive in terms of time? Um, these are all you know touch on really really big issues of of urban form, the morphology of urban of 
of urban America and the urbanization process more generally. And again, I'm drawing for the second, the, the subtitle of the book uh, on Neil Smith's work on uneven development and what he calls the seesaw motion of capital. So capital expanded out into the suburbs, suburbanization wave in the post-war era. And now you're seeing a partial kind of seesaw or a, a major actually seesaw motion of capital back into a, a, a smaller number of central cities in the United States. And I think resting our hopes on, on the bicycle being able to ride that seesaw motion rather than deal with the broader structure that has been wrought over the past 70 years, you know, actually more close to 100 years in the United States organized around automobility. I think that's really the next task. It's a retrofitting the suburbs task. It's the reduction of the need for mobility in a lot of places, the kind of coercive need for mobility in a lot of places. That's the kind of next task and the, and the, the next move that will require the bicycle, but really going beyond the bicycle as well. That's potentially a good segue then into micromobility in that you know, automobility has been, as you've just said there, you know, the, the past 100 years, that's been the, the, the main uh, driver of, of the shaping of, of, of cities, really. And many bicycle advocates, maybe even not bicycle advocates, have, have long said that, well, well, bicycles can replace cars. And what's happened in the meantime is these tech bro companies have come in and uh, the birds, the limes, and they brought in scooters. And potentially these these electric scooters are more car substitutes or better car substitutes than bicycles. So do you think bicycles are actually at risk of being left behind here? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, some days I do uh, and other days I don't. Um, I think I think that there's a lot of interesting potentials in in the micromobility story, which I which I touch on a little bit in the in the at the end of the book, but then I really kind of have dived into head on uh, with my new work, especially with my colleagues at, at Manchester, and then kind of moving forward. Um, which is that I think that there is something there's something good about a shift away from the kind of fetish of the object, you know, the, a fetish of the bicycle and a shift towards a focus on a, on a particular scale of mobility. And you are also seeing that predating um, the shift toward the, the shared bikes and scooters and all the rest of it in the, um, there's a planning paradigm that was coming out of Portland that was also being taken up in Detroit called 20 minute neighborhoods, right? Creating sort of new focal points within the urban fabric within which people, people were no more than 20 minutes walk of away from, you know, the, the quotidian requirements of life, right? Maybe not a big shop, maybe not buying a, a piece of furniture or something like that, but the sort of everyday needs, and I think that there's something there's something positive about refocusing around a scale rather than particular objects. And you're seeing people talking about small vehicle lanes rather than bike lanes. And I think that sort of broadens the potential for political will um, uh, behind micromobility. I'm still extremely skeptical of 
the kind of delivery mechanisms in, you know, essentially what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism, right? Or the, the it's very bubble prone moment. Uh, and I think it's really hard. The example of Mobike is a case in point. It's really hard to stake future, future potential um, mobility regimes on something that seems quite ephemeral, uh, ephemeral, ephemeral, sorry, at this point. Um, you know, mobility is ultimately a, an issue of rhythm and habit far more than um, than kind of novelty and and um, speed and uh, kind of constant uh, constant revision. Uh, there's a there's a phrase in the micro mobility and the kind of mobility platform world more generally that's code is the new concrete, and um, I think. You know, while concrete is uh, is a carbon furnace in and of itself, building things that last, that kind of orient future development, is um, is I, I still think a, a worthy goal. And so I, I would I think that this particular moment is we're we're in a kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall type of moment, and the concern for me is that with incredibly inexpensive actual physical infrastructure, right? If you think about the, the, the scooter, right? As the physical infrastructure combined with the data platform, um, that it doesn't leave much behind when the bubble bursts in, in a very different way that when the railroad bubble burst in the late 19th century, it left behind a lot of quite usable track, right? That we now use for on a public basis in a lot of places. Um, or the streetcar bubble burst, and what you were left what you were left with until it was dismantled was quite usable public transport systems. Uh, my concern is that there's there's nothing there's nothing left afterwards that can be used in a more uh, public way. And when you look at when you look at the investments that Uber and Lyft are making in micro mobility platforms. It's company that lose money and companies that lose money investing in other companies that lose money. And it's hard to see the um, it's hard to see, you know, what the future holds for that. Now, one thing I will say is that it I think it, it in a strange way shows that moving people equitably and sustainability sustainably is not profitable. And I think that that's fine. And I think opening up a conversations around the ma- a conversation around the massive subsidies that um, companies like Lime and Bird have received in the form of venture capital constantly delaying the need to be profitable, that that subsidy is not much different from the subsidy that moving people should be receiving uh, from the public sector, right? And that a, that kind of aligning that is that that subsidy is not bad. Um, that subsidies are needed. Moving people costs money. It's a public service. So you'd be a proponent of, and you, we're getting into dangerous left-wing socialist tendencies here, <laughs> but you'd be a proponent of free public transit, for instance, free bike share, uh, hires, for instance, that kind of thing. Certainly, yeah, and and the and especially their integration, uh, which I think is enormously important. Um, the the integration, and especially in the context of the United States, where it's 
you know, we we're dealing with a we're dealing with a land intensive form of urban development. And we're, you know, I'm talking about central city neighborhoods and the 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 kind of hypertrophic suburbs are another story altogether. And you're probably going to need in order to achieve that first and last mile access to transit, you're probably going to need faster ways of moving than just walking um, in order to access where people really do live while at the same time building up more housing. I would like to see it be social housing uh, around um, public transit nodes in suburban areas to sort of refocus that development pattern. Um, but when you look at where the places where micromobility platforms are serving, um, they're not they're not flocking towards out the the edges of transport networks, right? They're flocking towards the center the the centers that already actually have some of the best transport coverage. And I think that that's that need to generate more trips, which would be. I would say at least modulated under a more kind of publicly oriented type of system. Now on, um, you, you've touched on something in your book that I, I've certainly touched on in my books and is very rarely touched upon in bicycle advocacy circles, if at all. And that is how uncomfortable bicycling actually is to the great majority of people. And we kind of forget as bicycle advocates, we kind of forget that. So I'm going to, again, I'm going to quote your book. So you talk about cycling or bicycles do not shield the rider from the weather, from injury due to collisions or from the gaze of other road users. They cost their riders energy and impose risks, meaning distances measured in bicycle time vary between individual levels of effort. So bicycles are this. Yes, they're a miracle. Yes, they're wonderful for, for certain people. Yet at the same time, they are incredibly uncomfortable. They don't shield you, as you've said there, from the public gaze, which is an issue for women. It's an issue for people for colour, people who don't want to be seen. They don't want to be seen in public. A, a car is perfect for shielding from the, the, the public gaze. So bicycling isn't the panacea that many people think it is for many people. Do you, do you, do you, would you see that as quite fair? Yeah, I think it is quite fair. And uh, I, again, I think that the comparison to micromobility platforms is illustrative. I think part of what what has led to the enormous explosion of uh, scooter sharing is not just that the rides are unsustainably cheap, right? Um, and it's not just that the, the actual physical infrastructure is very cheap. And so it's easy to put a lot of it in the center of the city. Um, it's not just that you don't have to be responsible for it once you've ended your ride, like you do with a bicycle, which is subject to theft. You know, you walk outside and you have a, you know, a soggy bicycle to get on because it's been raining, all the rest of it. Um, it's not just those things. Uh, it's also the um, it's it's also the fact that uh, that it's easy, right? That it doesn't require a lot of physical effort. That you just kind of get on and go. And for those of us who are seasoned cyclists, we approach it in the exact same way. Um, but 
it is a kind of a learning curve. Um, and especially, I think it feels like more of a hurdle to be straddling something to that there's kind of more fit issues in terms of, you know, the height of the saddle, the, the width of the handlebars, the distance of the bars to the saddle, all of that. I mean, these are kind of, these are things that we take for granted, those of us who are kind of seasoned cyclists or those of us who are seasoned bicycle users and don't think of ourselves as cyclists at all, but are very comfortable on bikes. Um, I think that there's another, there's another aspect to it though, which is that we have, driving is also effortful in different ways. Um, Driving to work, especially very long commutes, is exhausting. Um, it's mentally exhausting. Uh, it, you know, it. I think. I think there's pr- fairly good research on on this that I, you know, I can't call fr- call up from memory right now. But the. Um, but I think it in- it imposes a psychological cost. Um, yeah, there are studies that show you it's the stress levels of a fighter pilot. Just yeah. just going into driving to work is just as stressful as that. So I think that there's, I think that we have to refocus the sort of discussion around effort of within the broader context of sort of what people's lives are like today. Uh, I talk a little bit referencing the the great British geographer Doreen Massey, who's talked a lot about time-space compression, which is a kind of classic in, in Marxian geography, the way that investments in um, kind of transport, in, investments in kind of faster transport create the kind of shrinking world. Of course, it doesn't shrink evenly. It shrinks between particular points that, that are connected to those networks. But one of the things that I think it is that you see with uh, bicycle, bicycle usage and walking as well is people choosing what you might call time-space elongation, right? A, a, a longer, slower, maybe slightly more effortful mode um, because of a whole set of other pressures in their lives that are reduced, right? The journey to work is potentially shorter if you live in a gentrifying area that are that's right next to your office in the central business district. There are other kind of pressures on on people's physical lives. It's really hard to, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do a lot of uh, social reproduction tasks, which are enormously gendered, right? Uh, child rearing, taking kids to school, um, doing the shopping, all of the, what is called trip chaining that is disproportionately done by women. Um, it's hard to do all that with conventional bicycles and the bicycles that make it easy to do that are very expensive, um, you know, twelve hundred to two thousand and beyond dollars. Um, which, if it's a it's a hard sell to somebody who is uncertain about cycling overall, and it would be especially a hard sell to somebody who their built environment doesn't really support um, easily doing that that kind of stuff. I live now in Greensboro, North Carolina, which has a very different built environment from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, very much car orient, very much more car oriented, uh, even in the kind of the central neighborhoods of the city. Very hard to do a lot of kind of routine shopping, 
buy bicycle, I still do it. But the effort, com- the effort commitment that it takes is not something that it would be easy to ask somebody whose job is otherwise also effortful or stressful um, or who have a lot of other claims on their time due to social reproduction or caring for um, caring for elderly uh, relatives, etc. It'd be hard to ask. Um, so I think we need other kinds of options, but we also need a different kind of built environment that exacts sort of fewer, fewer mobility, fewer, less coercive mobility and more mobility as, um, uh, as a choice, right? Mm. Now, you mentioned uh, Marxist geography. So there are Marxist geographers. Uh, can you get right wing bicycle advocates? Or is it inherently left wing? I think you definitely can. Uh, I mean, uh, we mentioned we we discussed a little bit about um, the uh, ver- uh, the vehicular cycling uh, tr- uh, way of thinking, which was really dominant in the United States, and I would I would hazard the UK as well uh, in, in the nineteen seventies onward. And vehicular cycling basically posited that. Uh, cyclists were safest when they acted the most like cars. Um, what that meant was riding at speed in the center of the lane. Um, and a lot of vehicular cyclists, uh, were quite reasonable when it came to bicycle infrastructure. And a lot of vehicular cyclists were extremely opposed to bicycle infrastructure investments on the basis that they would quote, segregate bicycle facilities and that it would be a slippery slope towards uh, banning cyclists from the roadways. And one of the kind of the fathers of vehicular cycling discourse in the United States, John Forrester, uh, who was a who was a Stanford Stanford avionics engineer, uh, had no particular kind of left wing procliv- pro- proclivities. He was quite um, centrist or center right, uh, depending on you know, how, how you measured, uh, his, his political tendencies. Uh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't use the past tense. He's still alive, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. yes. Uh, but the, but the narrative was very much around personal freedom and he was very suspicious of bicycle advocates who wanted to change what he saw were the kind of, um, the development patterns of the American suburbs that were a natural product of, uh, simply choices in the marketplace, where many urban historians from um, from David Freund to Kianga Yamada Taylor have shown how those were structured by, you know, racialized lending practices uh, and, and so on. The, the the redlining story, so to speak. So um, so I think that there there is a kind of individualistic streak. Occasionally, you'll see arguments in more conservative publications, like um, I think I've seen arguments in Reason, for example, uh, that, are, that are specifically around kind of the, you know, bicycling is good. It's personal autonomy. It's kind of personal responsibility. It is not um, attached to the, you know, mass transit system, or, you know, you might call the nanny state or something like that. And you hear this at a kind of vernacular level sometime among, sometimes among kind of ostensibly quite left-wing 
uh, bicycle advocates who nevertheless see one of the benefits, or not even advocates, but just bicycle users, one of the benefits of cycling being not being tied to transit schedules, right? The the sort of the the tyranny of the transit schedule, which in the United States, um, those schedules are quite dismal, right? I would I I bike to work every day because it's extremely easy. I live very close to campus. I would be able to walk to work. I would love to be able to just hop on a bus some days and and um, and be at work very shortly or be at other locations very shortly. But the 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 bus headways are are you know the 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 scheduling. They're very long delays. If you miss one bus, you're going to be standing for half an hour. So it's again, it's against the terrain of the existing that the bicycle looks like a kind of uh, a personal freedom. I was actually living in the living in the UK. Really, um, you know, introduced me to the fact that being able to take public transport everywhere is a form of freedom that I, I think is very precious and I think is very undervalued in the United States. John, we, we've covered a lot of ground, both metaphorical and literal. Spatial geography, this show has all been about. And we haven't even got onto the fact that you're a college radio <laughs> DJ. Um, so we've missed out tons, but we have included loads. And your, your book is a fascinating book. It's Cyclescapes of the Unequal City. So this is the point in the show where you tell me how people can get the book and how they can get in touch with you, perhaps on social media. Right. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. This has been really great. Uh, it's really exciting. Uh, I listened to a lot of these and now, you know, I get to get to kind of hold forth, so to speak. Um, you, you can you can get the book on the University of Minnesota Press's website. I think it's umpress.com. Uh, um, and you can also find me on social media on Twitter at J-O-S-T-E-H-L-I-N. Um, and uh, I think that, yeah, I think that covers the social media engagement part. Um, but I'm, um, you know, I'm excited to kind of talk about these issues with a sort of a fellow traveler, so to speak, and kind of um, kind of uh, play about with some of the potential futures that cycling holds. Uh, well, I've got to, on that note, thank you for including my books in, in your research. Uh, so I looked in your bibliography and there, there's some of my works that are in there too. So that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it was great. It was great to finally talk to you and, you know, meet, meet the face behind the words or meet the voice behind the words, I guess. Yeah, it's just the words because we're not having, this is not on video, this is audio only. <laughs> so, John, uh, th thank you ever so much for, for taking the, the time out of your assistant professorship role yes. at, uh, uh, at your, <laughs> your institution. Uh, we did take a while to get in touch with each other and we kind of like ships that passed in the night uh, once or twice. And we had a few technical problems, uh, all of which is, is now... Uh, all moot because we've had a, a fascinating conversation uh, a lot longer than probably uh, we both thought at, at, at the time uh, but I'm sure other people will find it equally fascinating as of course is your book Cyclescapes of the Unequal City so John thank you very much thanks to John Stalen there details about Cyclescapes of the Unequal City can be found on the show notes at the-spokesmen.com and that's also where you can get a transcript of this episode and a whole bunch of the previous ones. If you enjoyed today's show, brought to you as always by Jensen USA, make sure to subscribe so you're hooked up to get all future episodes. 
and take a shifty at our massive pack catalogue. It really is massive. There are a whopping 233 other episodes to check out. Hours and hours of listening pleasure. The Spokesman Cycling Podcast has been narrowcasting to the world non-stop since 2006. Well, kind of twice a month anyway. However, and wherever you like to listen to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast, get out there and ride.